great to be back with you. My name is Rabbi Ken Brodkin. This is the Jewish Growth Podcast. Welcome back. And I'll share with you that last night I had a special experience. I would say a spiritual experience of being at a, a chasana, a wedding of people that I've known for a very long time. And it, it's interesting to think about our own spiritual experiences and then to look at those of other people. Now, as Jews, we can never get enough of the royals. Our sages look to kings and royals as a metaphor for the sovereign of the universe, Hashem. And these days we have Britain's royal family. In that family, Prince Harry is the gift that keeps giving. And I actually think he's a person that we can learn a little bit about spirituality from. Now, out of the palace, Harry has given us a memoir called Spare. And the memoir teaches us something about our times. Harry says that he is spiritual, but not religious. And he's not alone in this identity, especially amongst his generation of millennials. In 2017, the Pew Research Center found that 38% of Americans, ages 30 to 49, were spiritual but not religious. Now, Pew also found that a large majority of Americans unaffiliated with the church believe in the existence of God, but many of these people are also on a solitary spiritual experience. While Harry comes from a royal family with a church-oriented Christian background, He has found his own spiritual ways. He considers managing nature a form of worship and environmentalism a kind of religion. Through nature, Harry feels close to God. What do we make of this kind of spirituality? Is that legitimate from a Jewish perspective? Now, from the perspective of the Torah, we can appreciate Harry. In the Torah, everyone's spiritual on some level. The Egyptians, for example, were not secularists. They worship nature through the sun and the Nile River, amongst other gods. The king, Paro, was at the center of this cult of spirituality. He became one with nature every morning as he waded out into the Nile River. And so Paro is a central figure whose downfall is intricately woven into the redemption of the Jewish people. Now let's take a look at how this story unfolds. The Exodus unfolds in Sefer Shmos, Exodus, in a natural progression of events. The Jews were subjugated. Moshe became their leader. The plagues which followed begin to break the resolve of the Egyptian oppressors. At the end of the third aliyah of Parshas Bo, we are on the brink of the tenth plague, and a warning for the slaughter of the firstborn is issued. Instead of continuing the narrative, the Torah introduces Rosh Chodesh, the new month in Korban Pesach, the Passover sacrifice. And in the middle of describing that mitzvah of Korban Pesach, the Torah refers back to the tenth plague that was about to begin. God himself will carry out the plague and render judgments against the gods of Egypt. And following that interruption, the Torah returns to the laws of the Korban Pesach, the Passover offering. And finally, having completed those laws, the Torah describes the tenth plague. An outcry occurs, and the Egyptians begin to force the exodus And even after describing the plague, the Torah goes back one more time and summarizes additional laws of the Pesach sacrifice. Well, that's quite a sequence. The Torah weaves the story of the 10th plague together with the laws of the Korban Pesach. There is a relationship here, given that the Jews spread the blood of the Pesach on their doorposts to avert the last plague. And think about it. The Torah goes back and forth four times here, between the topics. What is the meaning of this? Now, seemingly, the Torah had other options. For example, the Korban Pesach could have been 
discussed at the start of all the plagues, or it could have been discussed one time right before the tenth plague, by going back and forth between the sacrifice and the plague, the sacrifice and the plague. We get the sense that the two matters are really one story. Now, as far as plagues go, the tenth plague was in a category by itself. It was executed directly by Hashem. As the Haggadah expounds, Lo malach, v'lo shaliach, v'lo saraf. Not with an angel, not with an agent, not with a saraf. Rather, God himself in his glory and in his essence brought about the plague. What does it mean for the plague to be carried out by God and not an angel? If a malach is an intermediary, the other plagues were a result of an intermediate process. God set up forces of nature that would bring about the plagues. Not so the plague of the firstborn. There was no intermediate process, only direct intervention. The Torah states that all of the firstborn died from humans to animals in that plague. It is completely inexplicable on natural terms how all firstborn would be selected and perish. It is only an act of unfathomable, direct, divine providence that could bring that about. But what is the meaning of this plague? Why the firstborn? Now, in royal families, the firstborn are often inheritors of power. Even today, parents have a unique relationship with their first child. The firstborn is referred to as the beginning of your strength, and a first child might be seen as the first outward expression of a parent, an expression that hopefully extends beyond your own life. And so Makis Bechoros, that plague, struck down what might be the greatest idolatry, human power and arrogance. Throughout the plagues, the pantheon of gods and forces in this world were undermined. If the Egyptians worshipped the sun or the Nile River, these forces were undermined during the course of the plagues. But what else did the Egyptians worship? The last god to be challenged was Paro and human power itself. Our rabbis comment that Paro made himself out to be a god. He himself was one of those forces and just couldn't fathom that Egypt was lost. Paro had a skewed vision of the world. His arrogance and self-worship was the core of his refusal to accept Hashem. Nothing could turn him away from his fantasy reality that everyone just exists to serve him. It took Hashem, b'chvodo ba'atzmo, in his glory and in his self, to bring about Makas Bechoros, to bring about the slaughtering of the firstborn. In the moment he did this, all human arrogance of Egypt came tumbling down. Though Paro was spared so he could live on to further prove the existence of God, human arrogance was toppled. And likewise, if Makas Bechoros was the negation of human arrogance, the Korban Pasach is an affirmation of God. It's an act in which human beings subjugate themselves to the loftiness of God. And the two ideas work in tandem. We take the blood of the Pesach, which shows that we're subjugated before God, and we smear it on the doorposts. When we overcome human arrogance and serve Hashem, we are spared the destruction of the firstborn. On the contrary, our firstborn are devoted to the service of God. Arrogance is when we cannot back down from ourselves. It's where our own sense of self and our ideas become too big. Pesach teaches us that at times it's necessary to look at the gods that we worship, including the god of self-worship, 
The Passover lamb was, in fact, a god in Egypt. The Jews slaughtered that god in full view of the Egyptians, and then they barbecued it, so everyone could get a good whiff of what was happening. So we've got two ideas woven together, the last plague and the first act of Avoda service. The last plague of striking down the firstborn was a challenge to human arrogance. The first communal worship that we performed as a nation was the Passover sacrifice. What does it mean to be Jewish? On the one hand, Judaism is a religion in which we experience something beyond the mundane physical realm. But then again, plenty of idolatrous societies in the past were spiritual. Even spiritual people today can tend towards paganism, something that is against the ethos of the Torah. There's no mitzvah in the Torah to be spiritual per se. However, all mitzvot lead us to connection with the transcendental God, Hashem. The first command is not be spiritual, but rather, Anochi Hashem Elokecha, I am Hashem your God. The essence of Jewish spirituality is forming a relationship with Hashem. Going out into nature, for example, can foster our appreciation for the creator of the universe. Lots of people try to find something spiritual in our physical world. Prince Harry is not atypical, but the true path of spirituality is worshiping God. So Hashem is where we go back to. There's different places where we can begin a spiritual connection. The patriarchs were shepherds who went out into nature and looked at the vast sky and contemplated the universe. But at the end of the day, the contemplation leads us back towards the worship of Hashem. So how do we do this on a practical level? And does our appreciation of, say, nature or people or even buildings or art have a place in our avoda? How do we weave the different parts of our spiritual life together? The answer is that as Jews, everything comes back to Hashem. We can appreciate God through different experiences, but spirituality doesn't stop there. I'll give you an example. Last weekend, I had the opportunity to spend some time with my parents in central Massachusetts. We had some snowfall after we arrived. I got up early in the morning, walked down the snow-covered roads near an old golf course, a field, a farm that I used to pass as a kid. It was so exhilarating to see the snow-covered trees. But we don't then go and worship the trees. We worship God who created the trees. Every morning in the Pesuke de Zimmer, we declare that all facets of creation praise God. <coughs> As we say in Tehillim 148, Hashem is praised by mountains and hills. God is praised by mountains and hills, fruitful trees and cedars, beasts and cattle, winged birds. The whole natural world praises God mistake of the pagan world is to stop with the natural world. In fact, many people go on that route and they only connect to the, the physical world. The Jewish people connect back in our mitzvot towards Hashem, just as we did with the Korban Pasach. So when you find a moment in life that you're stirred by something spiritual, some experience or some something that you enter into, savor that moment. And then when you pick up a sitter or you do another mitzvah, Use the energy of that moment to declare that Hashem is the sovereign of creation. Thanks for being with me. I'm Ken Brodkin, and this is the Jewish Growth Podcast.